everyone, it's Bud. And thanks for joining me for the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment and the hills and valleys along the way. Ian Eagle and I have been friends for a long time, but trying to find him, especially during the football and basketball seasons, is easier said than done. He's a network play-by-play announcer on NFL football, NBA, and college basketball, plus the voice of the Brooklyn Nets on TV. And there are other gigs as well. He is, to put it mildly, a busy guy. So of course, when we did catch up, we started with the most important topic. I'm sorry, Ian. As you were as you were saying, you have glorious hair. Okay. Glorious. Well, thank you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. <laughs> what an opener. We're pretty much done. We're, I mean, we're pretty much done. Okay, before we get into your path to this wonderful career, you know, of course, you're obligated to do the mid-90s impersonation of every NBA introduction of their players. You know what I'm referring to? Yes. I've stolen just, that bit hundreds of times. Just so people understand, you and I got to know each other sitting next to one another at sporting events in the early to mid 90s, whether mm-hmm. it was Knicks, whether it was Rangers, could be I remember it was mostly Devils, Jets. 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 Because you're doing the pre and post on the That's Jets. That's right. And then I would go into the press room and I think our seats were next to each other and we would literally just entertain one another. <laughs> For three hours, other than the 10 minutes I had to go in and do the halftime bit. In lieu of and, actually watching the game, by the way. Yeah, well, don't don't tell anybody, because then yeah, okay. I had to host the post-game, right. which provided a, uh, a pathway to Jets fans everywhere to share their grief. It, it really was a <laughs> therapy session, more than, than it was a, a post-game show. And because we spent so much time together... We got to know one another very well. And one of the quote unquote bits that I would do for you, which you found hilarious for whatever reason, was the starting lineups in every NBA city basically were the same. Loud music, PA announcer, please welcome your Vancouver Grizzly, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and this would go from every city: Cleveland, Miami, Charlotte, you name it. So it was a showstopper for yeah. for, for me and you, basically. Well, I, you know, I, I I thought it was funny, and I've stolen it <laughs> a, a thousand times. Uh, well, thank you, thank you for that. I, I kind of put you on the spot there, and. I must say it was very impressive that you remembered immediately what I was talking oh, about. Oh, completely. It was it was etched in my brain forever. I think I, I think you had me do it every time we saw one another at one point <laughs> over a fifteen year period. Right. And that wasn't enough either, by the way. <laughs> no, you know, the the great ones the great ones tell themselves. Let's just put it right. that way. Right. Henny Youngman, what what's he? Right. He's not gonna do take my wife, please. You, right. you do right. your material. That's right. That's right. So oh we're in kind of a quiet time right now, preseason football and you know, NBA camps not in yet. But when it really starts cooking into high gear, let's say November and December, can you give me an example of what a typical week is like? 
Oh, yeah. Typical week, but is usually about five games and three might be NBA games. One might be an NFL radio game and then one might be an NFL television game. And it could be in five different cities. I've certainly faced that many, many times. So bouncing around from place to place, trying to compartmentalize, trying to get enough sleep, which is a huge key to bringing energy and being sharp and being able to lock in on your subject matter and then do it again. So wash, rinse, repeat. November, December in particular, parts of January with NFL playoffs and then college basketball starting. So that brings in a whole new wave of preparation and then usually some NBA national games at that point. So you're popping over to a city, you're dropping in, parachuting in, doing two teams that maybe you haven't seen yet this season and you have to be an expert on both teams or at least you have to act like an expert for both teams. So a lot of travel, uh, fun. Uh, this, this is not one of those situations where you wake up in the morning and it's woe is me. It's quite the opposite. You're excited about going to the arenas, to the stadium, seeing the people that you see in these given cities, working with what ends up being like family members, because you travel with these people. Sometimes three of the seven days a week you spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday with your NFL TV people, my Nets people, that could be three, four games a week, Westwood one, similar vibe week in and week out. So it it really is one of those uh, collaborative experiences. And I always like being a teammate. I, I enjoyed that aspect of the job. And I, I find that every year that is part of what keeps me rolling in this. Now, I know that you're a student of the game and always have been in terms of studying the histories of other uh, play-by-play announcers and other sports broadcasters. But in terms of the logistics and, and being able to stay healthy and, and keep up with, God bless it, a busy schedule, did you have to, early on, did you have to go to some of the people who are maybe not your peers, but people who've been doing it for a while and say, it's great, I, you know, we should all have such problems to be hired by this organization and this organization, but how do you do it from a, from a health standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question. Early on, I put my head down and I just did it. Now, most of my experience was with the Nets at that point, and I was traveling with Bill Raftery. And Bill is quite notorious for staying out late and enjoying an adult beverage or two Mm -hmm. or three Mm -hmm. or more. (laughs) And the first two years that I was part of that, I had no idea I was allowed to leave. So I would just stick it out until 2, 2.30, 3. And I was young. I was 25, 26, 27. So I thought my bounce back ability was there. And I was quickly realizing it was not. It was not an age thing. He's not human. His bounce back ability, his liver is going to be studied. There will be scientists that will... We'll take a closer look at how this man did what he did for all these years. Finally, year three on the job, I could leave. I just figured out, oh, just just pull the Irish exit and deal with the consequences later. 
And so there might be a little bit of a back and forth. Where are you going, bird? And I withstood it. I said, no, got to run. And the next day I'd see him in the hotel gym on the treadmill doing his little walk. And there were no hard feelings. He'd, hey, bird, how you, we had fun last night, huh? And I just quickly realized for my health, I needed to make some changes. So I, I think at that point, I got a better handle on what my body needed, how much sleep I required. We're all different. Right. I just know for me personally, if I get six hours of sleep, I can function at a high level. That's all I need. Would I like seven? Would I like eight? Absolutely. If I get six, I can do it. I can do this job. I could go out and do the NCAA tournament, the Super Bowl, the NBA playoffs, whatever. Anything below that Mendoza line for me, bud, we might have some trouble. And there are times where you do have to do it on four and a half hours sleep or off a red eye, quick turnaround. And that's where you're summoning something within you to bring and harness whatever's required to do this job well and to bring it. Because guess what? I realized also very early on, the audience does not care. They don't care about your issues. They don't care that you didn't get a good night's sleep or... Uh, the person next to you on the flight back was was doing the old neck lean as they were falling asleep right into your shoulder. They don't care. So you've got to just do your job, do it well, and everything else has to be put in a different box because mm -hmm. your box is go out, perform. Ever find that you're in an arena, especially during one of these weeks when you're doing you know, maybe five games, basketball, football, an arena or a stadium. And just for a split second, you look up and say, wait a minute, where am I again? <laughs> Rarely at the game, but definitely in the hotel. I'm, I've had a few in recent years where I've woken up and I really did not know where I was. And those are scary moments when, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to do a double take. Or I had one where I thought I was in my bed at home because it was a similar setup. And there was that, that 20 second period, that freak out of what is happening? <laughs> Why am I in Phoenix? This makes no sense whatsoever. So it used to be in hotels, the, the phones were right next to your bed pre proliferation of cell phone. That was your mode of communication. And you would stumble and you would look at the address literally on the phone. And oftentimes those phones don't exist anymore. <laughs> there right. might be like a cordless phone on the other side of the room, but it's certainly not next to your bed. You don't use it. You don't think about it. So the cobwebs occasionally will pop up. The other part, but too, and, and I'm, I'm not that proud. I will acknowledge and admit when there are shortcomings. So Bill Raftery, who I mentioned, who I've done hundreds upon hundreds of games with, he is about as perfect a partner that you could ask for because he's giving, he's affable, he's prepared, and he's just wonderful company on the air and off the air. But early on in working with him, we would get the room key with the little paper holder and he would grab the whole thing and put it in his pocket and the room number would be on there. And I mocked him 
I, I mocked him for no reason. I still don't know why. I, I, probably ignorance more than anything else. I said, well, why? Why do you need to bring the whole thing? Just, just figure out what room you're in and commit it to memory. Oh, bird, one day you'll see. <laughs> and lo and behold, many years later, I show up at a hotel. I go up to my room. I use the key card. It does not open the door. I use it a second time. It does not open the door. I go back down to the lobby. I wait online. I get to the front of the line. I said, hey, how you doing? Uh, it's uh, last name Eagle, room 632. Key isn't working. And now they're typing. And they said, uh, Mr. Eagle, you're in room 1051. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes, yes. How about we make up some new keys? <laughs> process going. So it does happen where you, uh, you lose yourself. And you're the guy who's doing the final four next year? <laughs> Showing up at random people's rooms and trying <laughs> to open the door. I have had that as well. I mean, if you travel enough, yeah, I've had one where why my key would have possibly opened the door of someone else's room that I thought was more room. And then you see a hairy leg as you open <laughs> the door. You're like, excuse me. I hope they at least said, hey, I love that Cowboys Eagles game you did Sunday. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. Your mom and dad working the Borscht Belt growing up. The Borscht Belt, the mount for people who are not from New York, the, the hotels in the Catskill Mountains north of uh, New York City, which really had their heyday in the 40s and the 50s and, and kind of in the 60s. But this is past that. Uh, what, do you remember like a first time or was this just always something that this was part of your life and I'm going up with my mom and dad to the Borscht Belt? Yeah, no, I, it was completely assimilated into my day-to-day -day existence. I don't have any early memories of my life that don't include the Catskill Mountains, Concord, Grossinger's, Stevensville, Homawack, Fallsview, Neville, the Browns. Kutcher's, on and on and on. Every hotel you could name, I've been there. Most of the bungalow colonies, I've been there. So this was just ingrained in my life. They took me along every weekend, not some weekends, every weekend of my life for a number of years until responsibility started to creep into the picture where I had to go to school and I had other things happening in my life where they could no longer take me as often, but I still went quite a bit. Um, so it was so normal that I couldn't believe that other people didn't have this in their life. When right. I started poking around the neighborhood and making friends with kids in my class and going to their house, it was complete shock that they didn't know what I was talking about. They had no experience whatsoever. I just assumed everybody was, was heading to the Borscht Belt and experiencing that in some way, shape, or form. What did you learn from them, watching them, watching them perform? Everything. I learned everything. From my mother, uh, I learned no matter what was happening in her life, no matter what physical state she was in, she could somehow get up on stage and sing 
and sing like an angel. She was extremely uber talented, but she had a lot of issues. She was an alcoholic. She was anorexic. Uh, there was a lot of stuff there. I didn't know about that stuff as a kid. I later figured it out into my teen years, but her ability to block it out and then do her job. There were moments I remember saying to my father, how is mom going to be able to get up on stage? She couldn't talk to me. And he said, oh, I am, she can sing above her chords. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm seven. What does that mean? <laughs> and ironically, I found it out many years later when I'm doing five games a week and maybe I didn't have my A voice on a particular game. And I found a way to go above my chords and still create the sound necessary, even though I might not be able to talk normally. If someone came up to me to have a, a regular conversation, I could get to a certain place that would allow me to do play by play. So as, as wild as that is to think now from the mid seventies to here we are in 2023, that I'm still applying something as, as hard to wrap your brain around that it does work for me. For my father, uh, I learned every room he entered, people were happy to see him every time. There was never a moment where I saw him enter a room and there was murmuring or people turning their head in disgust. He made everybody feel important. He knew something about them, personal information, their name, some connective tissue of humanity. And that absolutely had an impact on me in watching him, not even on stage, on stage, incredible command. I never saw him struggle in a show. Now his material was tailor-made for that audience and he killed every single time. Are there levels of it? Of course, but he killed all the time. So uh, the consistency in which he could perform his act. And I remember, I don't know, maybe I was 12 and it was just he and I driving back from a show and I'd seen his act hundreds upon hundreds of times. And I said to him, uh, dad, have you thought about maybe some, some new material? <laughs> and he, he said, Ian, what are you talking about? I said, yeah. I said, some new material, some new stuff, work some new stuff in. He said, I don't think you understand. That's my act. I said, no, 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 I understand. That's your act. He says, no, no, I don't think you do. That's my act. That works. I said, oh, got it. That's your act. Now I see. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I understand you eventually became part of the act. I did. I did uh, for a brief time, a little less than a year, uh, probably 1975, 76, in that range. Uh, they would prop me up there at the end of their act. My mother would open, my father would close, they would come out together. And my father worked with me for a few weeks 
on five minutes of material where I would do impressions, Howard Cosell, Muhammad Ali, W.C. Fields, big, big, big personalities. And we had uh, about five minutes of material that worked, obviously. I mean, I looked like I, I looked like a, a small a dummy that you would use on your, on, on your lap. You know, I, I had a, a three-piece suit on that they called a handsome suit, a bow tie. This was not going to fail. There was no way this would fail. And I did it for about 10, 11 months and then retired. I decided I, I didn't like the, the lifestyle. I, I needed to make some changes. Like, <laughs> like playing ball or going to school, something like that. Yeah. How old yeah, were you when you like did it? Being a kid. How old uh, were you when you did it? I was six. So probably mm. from 75 to 76 in that range. So six to seven years old. Mm. That Join, joined the union? No, I, I think that might have been part of the issue that uh, <laughs> child services was interested yeah, yeah, yeah. in interviewing my parents because I'm not sure they had filled out any paperwork whatsoever. So you're growing up in New York City there in, in Queens, and there are tons of teams around to pay attention to and to root for. And I understand pretty early on you got the sports casting bug, but is there a is there like a eureka moment of oh, this is, this is what I'm going for, and don't anybody try to talk me out of it. Yeah, I grew up a Mets fan, and the Mets were not very good during the time in which I felt a connection. I would say that would be a bit of an understatement. It's an understatement. They were losing yeah. 100 games a year. Uh, yeah. They were an embarrassment at that point. And it was the transition phase when they traded Tom Seaver, so they brought in all of the young kids. There was nobody left from the 73 Mets that came up short against the Oakland A's. And I stuck with it. I was going into school. The Yankees were winning titles. I had a Lee Mazzilli lunchbox and a John Stearns thermos. And I leaned into it. I, I liked the underdog mentality. And I told my, my mom and dad, right around 1977, eight years old. So after I had done the uh, rich little thing for about 10 months that I was going to pivot to a new career. And that was sports casting. And when I told each of them that I had told them separately, they both said the same thing, which was amazing at eight years old when each of your parents tell you, well, that's what you'll do. That was it. No analysis about it. No, mm, really what, what, made you come to this conclusion. That's what you'll do. It fuels you with so much confidence when those are the words that come out of your parents' mouth. Do you think any part of that was because they had uh, kind of an unorthodox path? Yes. They were in Completely. A, you know, One an unorthodox field. 100%. They did not have nine to five jobs. They did not see that as the only way to go through life. And I think they felt that I had something that was in me performance-wise that I'd be able to do this. They really had a belief that I could do it. It wasn't just uh, them trying to, to stroke their 
their kid and make them feel good in the moment. They really believed it. And because of that, you believe it. Uh, right. There is so much power in that. And I know, you know for a lot of people, when something is so different and unorthodox, the easy thing to do is dismiss it because the, it's ignorance. You just don't know. I don't know anything about that. So that's not realistic for you. And even though uh, my parents were not huge sports fans, it's not like that was a big part of our life. My dad became a bigger sports fan because I showed an interest and he wanted to find avenues in which we could bond. And my mom recognized that I was into it. So she would then start paying attention so we could have those conversations. And that's just based on them trying to find a way to bond with, yeah. with their kid. So that did a lot of good at that time to, to help convince me that this was attainable. This was something that I could actually do because my parents said so. And this may be an incredibly dumb question. It wouldn't be the first time I asked one. <laughs> uh, but considering the wonderful career that you've had, was there ever, as you're a teenager, then you go off to Syracuse, which is kind of like the, the cradle of future sportscasters, was there ever a notion of a plan B? No. No, I never... Never had a plan B. I thought maybe in the deep recesses of my brain, advertising could be something I would be good at. And maybe because my dad was in a bunch of commercials, I felt some attachment to it. Uh, he went on a run where whatever commercial he went up for, he got. He had like a three-year stretch where he was untouchable. He ended up doing about 50 commercials when it was all said and done. Some more famous than others and some more lucrative than others. But maybe, maybe just a, a smidge in the back of my brain. Okay, if I had to do something else, maybe I could be an ad man in, in some form. But nothing that I ever pursued, and certainly in college, I was all in from day one. The difference now compared to then, but as you know, a lot of it was in your imagination. It was baseball cards and for me setting them up on my bed and having fictitious games and calling those games right. or playing basketball with buddies and doing the play-by-play, -play, which is very annoying, by the way, <laughs> if you're playing against someone and they're announcing the game, doing that, that was really it. I didn't have an outlet. There was no high school radio and they weren't offering up a chance to do the morning announcements. I, performed in plays and we had a, a thing at Forest Hills High School. Sing was a big production where the students wrote it and produced it and directed it and acted in it. And I, I did participate in all that. So I was definitely, I was definitely scratching some itch, but I didn't do anything related to sports casting until I got to Syracuse my freshman year. Now you say that you were in these shows at Forest Hills High School. Now we can believe you, we, <laughs> but if you'd if you'd like to show us some evidence of this uh, talent, we, I mean, I'm sure we'd you know be fine with that. Uh, there, there is probably video somewhere that has not been transferred over. There are definitely photos. <laughs> Speaking of video, have... we have a little something right here. Yeah, I yeah. have a yearbook, but what was what I, was your best? I don't have a clip. I don't have a clip. I'm sorry, yeah. but it's real. It's it's not a, a tall tale. It happened. 
And somehow through all these broadcasts, that has Raftery never asked you to do a little little something during a, you know, like a blowout during a 101 no. to 68 game. No, no one, no one's ever requested the the performance aspect. You know, I'd like to sprinkle in some levity. So maybe that that's my way of of trying to to harken back to the old days, but no, no, no real serious acting chops being used. Did you feel comfortable doing that right from the get-go in those first like Nets games on the radio? Or was there a time when you were like, okay, now I've established myself. Now I can be a little bit more of oh, yeah. who I am. No, hundred percent. You, you, you nailed it. I, I thought you were going somewhere else. No, I did not introduce that aspect of my personality until second half of my first year on Nets TV. Bill Raftery, larger than life figure. I got out of the way. I would tag it occasionally. And then after the All-Star break, I remember a conscious effort of me now, you know, bobbing and weaving a little bit and interjecting. And then as the years went on, getting more and more comfortable with showing that side. From a national perspective, it took a while. I did not think it was appropriate. I wanted to build credibility. I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to show people that I've done the work and that this matters to me. And probably five, six, seven years into doing more national assignments, I started getting comfortable with the idea of, okay, I think the audience is familiar with me. Not everybody, but enough that I'm, I'm going to, pull the curtain back a little bit and show you a bit more of my personality when applicable without forcing it, but recognizing there are people that have a good sense of humor out there and it's not going to connect with everybody, but if enough people get it, then you feel like you're doing the right thing. It seems uh, from reading about you and, and talking about it through the years that things went great at Syracuse. Uh, you won an award when you were a senior and you were interning with another guy who did pretty well, Mike Tarico at the local TV station. As you're coming out of Syracuse, is there any notion of doubt? Is there any notion of, um, is this going to work out for me? Or are you pretty much full steam ahead? And oh, of course, this is going to work out. I was confident. There's no doubt about it. But I didn't know what the path was going to be. And that's part of the mystery, even to this day, anyone that wants to enter this field, there is that mystical part where things need to break a certain way. You need to have people believe in you and trust you, which is such a huge word in our business, because that's really what's happening. If I'm doing an NFL broadcast, they're trusting me with three hours of airtime. If I'm doing an NBA game, they're trusting me with two and a half hours of airtime that they don't have to worry, that they they know it's going to be well taken care of, that I'll be prepared, that I will do all the necessary parts of the job to take the audience from point A to point B to point C. I'll inform, I'll entertain, all of that. But as you're coming out of college, who's going to trust you to do it? So I had a couple of job offers on the air. I had one in Buffalo and I had one in West Virginia. And they were on-air, low-level jobs. And I was very much tempted by either of them, to be honest, because it just meant that I could continue doing 
what I felt I was building towards something in my four years of college. And then I got an offer from WFAN radio, but as a producer, so not on the air. And I had to make a decision at that point. Do I want to go back home to New York, be at the radio station that everybody wants to work at, but not in the role that I envisioned? Or do I want to go to West Virginia or Buffalo and try to work my way to New York on the air eventually at WFAN? And my decision was, no, let me get in there. Let me show everybody that works there what I'm all about. Let me be a fly on the wall, osmosis, whatever it takes. Let me experience it. And let me go back home, which was of paramount importance to me. So that's what I did. And it was not the easier path uh, by any stretch. I was told definitively, don't take this job if you want to be on the air. You're not going to be on the air at WFAN Radio. And I said, I get it. No problem. I'm just going to do my job. I'm producing 7 to Midnight. That means Howie Rose's show. That means Mets baseball. That means Knicks basketball, Rangers hockey, whatever else fell under that umbrella of 7 to Midnight. And ultimately, I got a chance, but it didn't happen overnight. It took a while. It took until September of 1991. I started May 1990, September of 1991. I got my first chance to do updates. And it went well enough that they asked me to do it the next week and the week after the week after that, eventually getting a chance to do some shows, including a five hour pregame show before the Super Bowl with Steve Levy of ESPN fame. Uh, he and I hosted a show prior to Buffalo, Washington, and then I was off and running. I was getting more chances, more opportunities, and I was taking advantage of those chances. I was doing well in the reps that I was getting, and I started to be seen differently. I was knocking down the walls of perception, which, Bud, as you know, is really hard to do mm -hmm. in our business. I'm chuckling because I'm fascinated by people in any line of work who have that moment early on when the success is by no means guaranteed and they have a decision to make, oh, should I go in this direction? Should I go in this direction? And they make that decision. They listen to advice from friends, from family, and then you know, follow their heart, don't follow their heart. And those moments I'm, I'm fascinated by. I'm also chuckling because I, pro I didn't know you then, but I probably would have been one of those guys to tell you to go to West Virginia or Buffalo because I do remember, and I don't think I'm talking out of school here, another pretty great broadcaster, Bob Papa. I remember covering Yankee games and Bob would cover as well, 86, yep. 87. I think he got a job offer on the air in Utica, if I remember correctly. And I told him, you got to go, you know, you got to have an on-air job. And he didn't go. If I, I may be making this all up, you know, it's been a few years, but I remember he didn't go and then it worked out pretty well. <laughs> so, And we have the unique perspective of experience and years accrued and relationships as well. You, know, you think, Bud, in, in your career, and I think back in, in my career, it's all of the people that you've accumulated over the years that add to the experience and those that you spoke to when they were young and you were young and divergent paths. Right. It, it's the butterfly effect in many ways. And you're right. Uh, I 100% could have taken one of the other two jobs. And I think there are many people that would have said that's the better move. 
And maybe I end up in New York somehow anyway, or maybe my life and career take me to some other geographic area and you meet other people and you marry someone else. It's this sliding doors concept that can be completely mind blowing if you let your, your brain go there. All right, we're coming down the stretch here. Uh, one last thing. I just want to make sure you remember our deal as far as the Final mm-hmm. Four is concerned, and that is uh, when you're doing the Final Four next spring, every time you mention the fact that the University of Pennsylvania was the last Ivy League team to make the Final Four, <laughs> there's a little something in it, a little extra in your envelope, okay? Just I'm not cool saying. It's not checkbook yeah, journalism. Cool I'm, ju- I'm just saying. Um, um, I'm cool with it. What if I, what if I just touch my ear? <laughs> that's if it. I, if I grab my ear during the Open? No, no, I need to mention. I need to actually actually mention. Okay. Um, At this point, and first of all, that's, of course, wonderful news about, and you've done the tournament for many, many years, and now you'll just do one more weekend, and that's beautiful. Is there any moment at this point with any event where there's a little bit of nerves leading up to a particular game, even though you've done a thousand of them? And is that still part of it in some small way i wouldn't categorize them as nerves as much as i would put them in the classification of anticipation and wanting to do good work and doing it the way you always do it not deviating and that's what i'm going to remind myself even for the final four it's different it's a really big event and there are more cameras and there are more people and it's literally a stadium. So even the, the, the geography of where you sit is different. Normal arena, you're down on regular chairs. It's a proper setting at midcourt. Stadium, which I'm not sure anyone would, would even care about the, the background, but maybe just out of curiosity, they've got to put you in a high chair because you have to have enough of an angle to see the action because it's elevated. And even that can throw you off just a bit. I remember I did the final four in Indianapolis on the world feed. It was the Duke Butler championship, one of the best championship endings of all time. And we did not have the high chair setup. CBS did, but we were lower. And the first five minutes of action, I did the final four and then I did the national championship game. First five minutes of action, it was throwing me off because angles that you normally automatically look towards during action, I was looking at guys' ankles and calves. My sight lines were completely different. So was I still doing the game? Yes. Was it effective? Would anybody have known? Probably not. I knew. So even just small things like that, I I think I just have to be aware and cognizant of the difference between that weekend and other weekends I've called in the NCAA tournament. The mechanics of doing the game, not much changes. Are you a reflective guy? I know you're a busy guy, but are you a reflective guy at any time and able to take a step back and say, wow, long ago, not that far away, Queens, New York, but long ago, I had this notion of what could be, and it turned out to be the case. I'm 
extremely appreciative. So that goes without saying. I think the emotions of it probably will hit me when it's over, the first one. And I almost have to go into a different mode, which is do the work, treat it as such. Don't get overwhelmed by the idea of where you are and what you're doing. Do the games and let everything else fall into place. It's it's a really interesting concept because it it goes against all of your instincts you feel like you need to do more the game's bigger the event is bigger so naturally i've got to do more i've got to do more prep i've got to be even more descriptive in the words i choose and the reality is it's quite the opposite in my experience you end up doing less it doesn't mean you're you're shortchanging your prep. It doesn't mean that you're not as energetic in your calls. But the moment speaks for itself more than it needs you to speak for it. So that's a really interesting lesson that I continue to tell myself. Now, I have to actually go out and, and subscribe to it in the moment. But for now, that's part of how I've, I've looked at it through that lens. Love you, my friend. Love you too, bud. Truly. Ian Eagle, among his many broadcasting duties, the NCAA basketball tournament. But in 2024, he will, for the first time, be the voice of the Final Four. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin. And this is before the cheering started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.